Welcome to a new episode of Undercurrents. Agnes, what's new? Hello, Ben. Well, the latest issue of The World Today is out with a cover story on Russia by Maxim Trudubilov. It's a really great piece. It's really great to have a Russian writing, you mm-hmm. know, on Russia. Yeah, because so often the commentary is from, yeah, there's a, there's a lot people of, outside of the country anyway, external observers. So there are a lot of Westerners who feel very confident writing about Russia, mm-hmm. many of whom are are wonderful and know an awful lot about it, but... It's really nice to hear a voice that isn't Western. How do you go about finding uh, authors for your cover stories? Oh, good question. By and large, Alan Phillips and I sort of come up with with topics and then we sort of just think about who would be the best people to to do it. And we're trying to get a broader mix of people because, you know, a lot of people come up quite often. Um, So what's what's his article about? So it's about Putin because, and I hadn't really clocked this, but Putin has now outlasted Brezhnev. And he's coming up to beating Stalin. So Brezhnev was in power for 18 years. And Putin, if you take into account his time as prime minister, which I think we probably all do, you know, has been there coming up to 25. So it's sort of looking at his legacy and how politically he's he's still quite popular in Russia. Mm. But I think just being able to put... He's sort of joined the Hall of Greats slightly. And we also have a great piece on how Central Europe is splitting from Western Europe by Tony Barber. And yeah, lots of great stuff, so mm-hmm. check it out online. And the interview, of course, of with course. Ronan Farrow. The interview with Ronan Farrow Who we actually spoke to a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, two episodes ago. So yeah. if you missed that, which I'm sure you wouldn't have done because we, really pl- we really plugged it. We tried <laughs> um, I'd be very surprised if you missed that one. But do do go and have a listen. We'll edit um, that out. But read and read it. And read it online at yeah. chathamhouse.org. So Ben, Fantastic. what have you been up to? Well, a lot's been going on looking ahead to the launch of a new special issue of IA. Oh, great. Which is looking at Japanese foreign policy in its neighbourhood in Asia and its relations with India, Russia, Korea, Southeast Asia, and how that's shifting in the age of the current US president. Yeah. And we're going to actually have one of the editors from the issue on the podcast uh, in a couple of episodes' time, which should be great. great. Corey Wallace coming over from Berlin to do the podcast, uh, but also to to speak at a members' event. Um, Yeah, so it's just been a lot of preparation for that. But who did you speak to this week? So this week I spoke to Jacob Parakilis, who is the deputy head of the US and America's programme here at Chatham House, about their new report that has come out called Artificial Intelligence and International Affairs. And it's a it's a multi-authored report. So there are five authors and he he's one of them. Right at the cutting edge. <laughs> and what about you, Ben? Well, I spoke to Jane Kinnamont from the Middle East and North Africa here at Chatham House about her recent work on Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. drawing particularly on the legalisation of, of women driving mm-hmm. in the country but then the subsequent uh, suppression of many of the activists who pushed for that yeah. for that change in law so really interesting discussion but Great. let's hear from you and Jacob first I'm here with Jacob Barragulis, who is the deputy head of the US and the Americas program here at Chatham House, to talk about the new report that is out, Artificial Intelligence and International Affairs, of which 
you are one of the many authors who I'm going to list now. So, M.L. Cummings, Heather M. Roth, Kenneth Kukier, Jacob Parakidis, and Hannah Bryce as well. So, welcome, Jacob. Thank you. It's good to be here. <laughs> Finally get you on the podcast. It's great. Just before you head off to paternity leave. Mm-hmm. So, artificial intelligence and international affairs, quite a big topic. It is. And I should say this isn't a comprehensive report. We've tried to cover some of the most pressing issues because the the genesis of this was really that we thought it was necessary to have some kind of interface between the the technological conversation about artificial intelligence and the policy conversation. There are two very, very separate conversations. And and I think we've seen some progress in the 18 months or so since we, we started working in a serious way on this report. We've seen a lot of progress towards bringing those conversations together. But there's a, a lot of work still to be done um, on making sure that technologists understand policy and that policymakers understand the technology, because this is going to be really significant. And one of the, the, the big drivers behind our desire to write something about this was we felt like a lot of the conversation around artificial intelligence was quite apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. You have people like Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk issuing these proclamations about how artificial intelligence is a greater threat than North Korea, for example, um, that it's an existential risk to humanity. Um, and without uh, making a judgment on the, the validity of that particular claim, um, far be it from me to uh, cast out on Stephen Hawking. I think he clearly knows. Or Elon Musk. Or or Elon Musk, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Um, But I think there's there's a separate conversation that we need to have about the ways in which artificial intelligence is going to work into the existing decision-making structures of international politics and the existing power balances. Because there's real potential for, in the sort of medium term, artificial intelligence to make its way into the structures through which this thing that we call politics happens, the decision-making processes. And if we're just talking about the Terminator scenario of weird, creepy, chromed exoskeletons with strangely human teeth and glowing red eyes firing laser rifles at the plucky band of human survivors, then we're not really going to be understanding the the significant ways in which artificial intelligence is likely to impact political structures in the near future. I wonder how much the actual title of artificial intelligence does damage, because it does seem like science fiction. If it were called something else, I think it might be taken more seriously potentially by policymakers. And we use the term artificial intelligence advisedly mm. because it is a term that generates a certain amount of eye rolling um, among some of the, the technical experts that we talk to in the process of this. It's a useful catch-all term. It's not, I think, a particularly useful way of conceptualizing at a technical level what this kind of software, because it is fundamentally software, yeah. right? But it's there is software which is not artificially intelligent, um, Microsoft Excel, for example. Uh, but there's no artificial intelligence that is not software. Yeah. So there has to be some useful distinction. We use it because it's a catch-all, because it's a little bit eye-catching, because mm-hmm. it it encompasses something where people who aren't technical experts immediately say, right, I've got some idea of what that is. Within that, you have 
various subdivisions of machine learning, deep learning, you know, neural networks, these, these different categories of things, all of which are part of this broad and slightly hazy and inaccurate overarching term artificial intelligence. Um, can, I, can I just jump in? So could you define sort of deep learning versus machine learning <laughs> very briefly? So machine learning is a subset of artificial intelligence where the code to some degree is not complete. Right. It is a, it is allowed to program itself on the basis of exposure to very large data sets. Okay. So you have a, a code that is programmed to look at a thousand pictures or tens of thousands of pictures of cats. And its task is to be able to identify a picture of a cat from a non, uh, something that's not in the database. Luckily, the internet provides us with a profusion of pictures of cats. Mm -hmm. So the the algorithm goes through and it looks for pointy ears, furry, um, eyes, teeth, you know, raspy tongue, frequently sleeping, sometimes with a dead bird in its mouth. And it goes through and it makes a, a set of categorizations about this without a human coder going through and saying, this is a cat. That's not a cat. This okay. is a cat. That's kind of a cat. Um, you know, a tiger or something. A, <laughs> a semi-cat. <laughs> because it's very time-consuming for a human being to go through and, yeah. and, and do that kind of categorization, if you'll pardon the pun. The difficulty there and the danger there is that as you deal with these enormous data sets, there are ways for them to be manipulated. There are mm-hmm. ways for them to be inaccurate. They can reflect unconscious bias. Mm-hmm. And we saw there have been a couple of instances of... Google categorizing for, you know, Google algorithms or other kinds of algorithms coming up with incredibly racist or prejudiced results because there's been some bad input. So the process of actually trying to figure out how do we ensure that the data sets are, are workable and the, the, the scraping of it is done in such a way that AI doesn't generate effects that amplify existing inequalities yeah. is really, really important. And it's beginning to get into public consciousness. Those those high-profile instances certainly have done some work towards drawing attention. But because this is so complicated and technical, it's very difficult for non-technical specialists to engage in the debate about how to make it happen. Yeah. And I, I suppose it's like anything else, isn't it, really? It's, it's only as good as the human who programs it or sets the code. Right. And in those examples, they're so extreme. Even I mean, a stupid one was when... Google Maps, you know, blurred out the face of Colonel Sanders on KFC posters because they thought it was a human, like that, those sort of things. But the high-profile ones show up quite extreme cases, but there must be a lot of other cases that are not as high-profile and it's probably a bit more insidious. It's Yeah, and it can be very insidious. And, I mean, you know, we're, a, a, we're an international affairs think tank, yeah. so a lot of this work has to be done by organizations that are more suited to the the domestic ramifications. But in a broad sense, I mean, this is indicative of the, the potential harms of AI, that you can have these very complicated systems yeah. where not only is the code so in-depth and complicated that it's difficult for even a technical specialist to review all of it, but in, in machine learning systems, actually a lot of the code isn't written by a human. No human hands type those pieces of code. Uh, No human eye has reviewed it. It's basically working from a seed that grows into a full system. Um, I may be mixing my metaphor slightly here. No, but uh, yeah, that explains it. And as this is this comes up quite regularly, I think, especially in security issues, you're dealing with the private sector, aren't you? Yeah. And the private sector's impact on policy 
Yes. So this this stuff is not being controlled by governments. It's not, and that's so. There are there are three substantive chapters that yeah. we commissioned from experts in various fields, and one of them is uh, a chapter on military implications. Yeah. It's written by Missy Cummings, who mm-hmm. is the head of the Humans and Autonomy Lab at Duke University. Such a great name. It's a great name. Such a great name. Um, and she makes an argument, and there's a lot of, especially lately, you know, in April, you had the, the group of governmental experts in Geneva at the UN talking about how you regulate lethal autonomous weapon systems. And that's a, a, an incredibly important part of this conversation, but it is only part of the conversation because when you're talking about a lethal autonomous weapon system, what you're fundamentally talking about is the decision to order a weapons release that takes human life. Yeah. That doesn't, if you ban that, that doesn't mean that autonomous systems won't be used by the military. It doesn't mean that, you know, in the far future with robots serving us drinks, war will be fought by 18 year olds on a muddy battlefield with automatic rifles. Mm you know, in no different than it is today or 50 years ago. Um, what it means is that we don't have a good definition of where autonomy begins and ends. Yeah. And part of the problem, as uh, Missy Cummings observes in her chapter, is that a huge amount of the expertise is in the non-defense commercial sector. Right. So you have the, the, the world-leading AI expertise isn't at... Northrop Grumman. It's not at mm. Boeing. I mean, those those companies have AI research shops and they do some very interesting work, but the really, really f- sort of bleeding edge stuff is happening at Baidu and Google and Amazon and yeah. the big tech companies, predominantly American and Chinese. Um, and, you know, it, the, the, the Chinese companies are in some ways more advanced than the American companies, in other ways catching up very, very rapidly. Okay. Um, and that's the, the sort of power balance issue there is that the t- countries that are in most ways are the two most powerful states on earth are also the countries that have the two most advanced AI industries, if you yeah. can call it that, on earth. Um, we'll but, come... it, but again, talking about the, the fact that that's where the expertise is, and it, is, it isn't centered around being linked to working in an, you know, for an arms company. That must mean that the way that they are thinking about things is quite abstract, potentially, quite theoretical, because they're creating this stuff, but they're not working with the sort of end result. Exactly. And and part of the... It, it's a fitness for purpose question, mm. because... It's not as simple as saying, well, Northrop is just going to buy a license to Google's code and stick it into a, you know, an autonomous fighter jet. It's, yeah. it's more complex than that. But when you're talking about the behind-the-scenes systems, the analytical processing systems, the systems that look at you know, many, many uh, gigabytes of streaming video and make it possible and sort of flag sections that are important for a human analyst to cast their eye over... Mm. Those are going to emerge from the commercial sector, and they're going to be, in, fu- in very fundamental ways, um, differently designed in the commercial sector than they would be if they were originally designed for defense applications. Yeah. And that creates really unpredictable consequences because they weren't, just, you know, these are, these are, at the end of the day, tools. They're very, very complicated tools, mm-hmm. but you design a tool for a certain job, and if it's used for other jobs, there are going to be elements of it that are either extraneous or awkward or not fit for purpose, or you know, at the extreme edge of the of the sort of tail of distribution outcomes, um, potentially dangerous. Yeah. And how how do you regulate something that so few people understand? With enormous difficulty. Yeah. Uh, is the the glib answer the problem 
is partly that so few people understand it. The other problem is that, you know, unlike with nuclear weapons, the the secret sauce of AI is really a secret mm-hmm. that you you can't in in some ways you can't regulate code without sort of showing your hand. Yeah. I mean Obviously, the precise details of nuclear weapons are very, very tightly held secrets. But at the end of the day, you test a nuclear weapon, it creates uh, an explosion of a certain magnitude, which is detectable, it releases radionucleotides, which are detectable. You know, that that is all stuff that gives you a broad understanding of the outline of what a capability is. And yeah. you can regulate on that basis. An AI system isn't like that. And once you have given access to the code, you've kind of given the game away. So yeah. it's you, you get into really, really serious issues of commercial and military secrecy, which are not going to be easily overcome because pe- because those entities are going to see themselves as having very, very strong interests in maintaining uh, the confidentiality and the value of their investments. So you need to create a, a, a platform in which it's possible for a trusted source to review code. You need to create some degree of parity so it's not a strong do what they will and the weak do what they must situation. Mm. And one of the big themes that we keep coming back to in the report is this idea that, and, and again, going back to the fact that the, the big AI research firms are primarily in China and the US, there has to be a mechanism to ensure that AI is evenly distributed. Otherwise, it will create efficiencies and make the existing power imbalances greater. It does have the potential, and and Heather Roth's chapter on human security implications uh, makes this point really clearly. There are ways in which AI can really fundamentally make the world a better place. It Mm -hmm. can make disaster response more efficient. It can predict shortages of food and water in ways that human analysts maybe couldn't, but there needs to be an incentive for AI to be deployed in those ways yeah. because that's not a profit-making enterprise. And at the moment, with AI development largely in the commercial sector or in the defense sector, there's just not the impetus. So there needs to be a concerted effort to spread out research. Different countries outside of the, the most powerful need to have AI strategies. And we've seen some actually already develop that, which is a good first step. Mm-hmm. And there needs to be a, a more sort of open and fair and equitable approach to developing and deploying and checking, having accountability for artificial intelligence systems. I mean, on the regulation issue, this is a really very stupid comparison. But for example, Coca- the best kind of comparisons. <laughs> like Coca-Cola or Heinz ketchup, okay, their key recipes are completely secret so that people can't copy them. And people try and copy them and they sort of do. But we can still regulate whether or not those things are safe for people to consume. So is it possible <laughs> for a you know, without getting in deep into the code, to regulate the sort of outcomes of AI? Yes, but it's going to become more difficult. Mm-hmm. If you think about the the way in which the internet proliferated, mm-hmm. it started as a system by which um, parts of the U.S. defense establishment could send information. And then it became a system through which universities could share information. And then it became kind of a hobbyist thing. And then it became quite important for a lot of sectors. And now it's sort of uh, universal. So... If you were to say right now, let's regulate the way in which 
people can use the internet. Well, Mm -hmm. you're talking about this incredibly vast and multifarious kind of set of uses and set of experiences and coming up with a a single or even a a network of regulatory frameworks to Mm -hmm. deal with that is virtually impossible. And we're rapidly approaching, I would say, that point with AI. I mean, it started out as kind of a concept. You can, you know, maybe you, you, the idea of an intelligence that's not human, obviously, is very, very old. Indeed, you can trace the original idea of an artificially intelligent system with a sort of interface in the real world to uh, Carl Capek's RUR in 1920 mm-hmm. and the sort of, you know, theoretical followed by technical development from there. And now, again, it's quite a difficult thing to define. How do you, is, is Google Translate artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. for example? How do you regulate something that is such a, a broad church? So there are specific cases and the, the campaign to ban killer robots is, is one where you can try to hive off a section of use cases and say, we morally don't think that it's acceptable that robots get to decide whether a certain human being lives or dies. Mm-hmm. That needs to be a human decision with human accountability. And we're just going to say that's illegitimate. And I think that's a reasonable way of thinking about how to limit some of the harms. The devil, of course, is in the details. First of all, getting states with significant geopolitical interest and arms races in process to agree to that. Mm. And second of all, even just defining sort of, well, what's an autonomous system? In a way, a landmine is an autonomous system. It's, it uh, is set. There's no human control. When it reaches a certain point where there's a, a, an interface with the world, it is activated. Mm. Now, in a landmine, that's just a simple trigger where if somebody steps on it, it goes boom. But that is, that is a sort of autonomous system. Yeah. Now, it's also worth mentioning landmines have been banned, yeah. so maybe that's a... I was going to say, thought, thought they, weren't, they weren't all right. They're, yeah. they're, they're, they're not, and yeah. that's, that's right and good that they are banned. But the point is that the sort of what is autonomy and yeah. what is having a weapon making a decision on it. So it's not quite as simple as just saying, well, it's a, you know, it's a, a, a tank without a human crew that makes decisions to fire on its own. I mean, that, that it's significantly complicated politically, strategically, tactically to draw that line, even in that one specific area. Yeah. Um, so bringing that out to the whole idea of autonomy, where increasingly we're just putting computers into objects mm. and, you know, your your fridge is going to have some level of autonomy and your doorbell is going to have some level of, of autonomy and your obviously your phone increasingly is an intelligent device. Mm. <laughs> Ben's just pulled a, a bit of a face there. Ben's just stopped Googling. <laughs> it is... is really, really difficult and yeah. complicated. And I think what we're trying to say in the report isn't that it's not difficult and complicated, isn't that we as a policy institute have the answer to those questions. It's that we're not seeing the conversation on both sides because mm-hmm. the 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 technical people need to have a better understanding of the political implications of the tech of what they're building yeah and the political people have a need to have a better understanding of what the technology can and already does do yeah so this is i I think the contribution of the report is that it's a first step to bridge that gap to bring people closer together on thematic and strategic issues and to begin to think through how do we manage this emerging technology before it's too widely distributed and too part of everyday life to meaningfully get control of it. People have always been scared of new technology, like it's always worried people. This, I think, is 
is so linked in with science fiction and culture more broadly like going back to H.G. Wells you know everything and then obviously Terminator and grit new stuff um, <laughs> but I think there's, there's this also politicians and policy makers will never be able to stop scientists or um, inventors from progress whatever that means like people will always continue to invent and develop things so it is just a case of yeah I suppose policymakers being involved vaguely or at least understanding it. And it's it's hard to do because politics is such a human endeavor. Yeah. On the electoral side, on the representative side, there's that sense of, of retail politics that what you are doing is making decisions on behalf of, whether you're in a democratic system or not, you are mm-hmm. making decisions on behalf of a body politic, a group of people. You know, the, the processes that feed to your decisions are, well, you've got a staff mm-hmm. and you've got agencies that are staffed by human analysts and human managers who manage the analytical process. And the danger that we are trying to sort of draw people's attention to is that AI systems don't replace those things on a one-for-one basis. They come in from the side. So if you're negotiating a trade deal, for mm-hmm. example, maybe increasingly the analysts are looking at not the raw figures, but an aggregate of raw figures compiled by an artificially intelligent system. Mm-hmm. And then maybe you, and this is still theoretical, but one of the possibilities that we float in the report is maybe the trade deal isn't, right, I'm going to levy a 25% tariff on cars imported from the Republic of Agnes to the Federated States of Jacob. Mm-hmm. It's that, okay, well, there's going to be an artificially intelligent system which looks at the current trade balance and maybe this shipment of cars has a 25.4% tariff and then the trade balance changes and the next shipment that comes in has a 26.8% tariff and those adjustments are made by an artificially intelligent system that Mm -hmm. just has sort of a human overlooking it. Now, that's a sort of quite mundane case, but it's a, a case in which that sort of process if it's run by humans, you can go back, you can interrogate the human analyst, the the guy sitting at the docks and, you know, checking off the, the cars as they roll off the Roro ship or whatever. Whereas with, with an artificially intelligent system, it's much more complicated to figure out why a decision was made yeah. in an instant. And there's so much data and there's so much, so many decisions that the human element is increasingly atop this sort of pyramid mm. of artificial decisions. And it's important, I mean, let's not valorize human decision-making. No. Humans make bad decisions all the time. Yeah. And I think one of the <laughs> one of the most compelling arguments for autonomy is that robots are, are immune to some of the bad decisions that humans make. Yeah. For example, a robot car is never going to drive drunk. A robot yeah. car isn't going to get angry and run people off the road. It's not going to do donuts in the parking lot and skid out yeah. unless you program it to, which it, to be fair, I would, but yeah. I'm, I, this is, there's a reason why I'm not in charge of programming robots. But it wouldn't cars. have had a bad day. It wouldn't have had a bad day. It wouldn't be trying to pacify a baby in the backseat. Yeah. It wouldn't be trying to, it wouldn't be rocking out to ACDC and speeding up because of that. Yeah. Definitely not it's really, for personal experience. really yeah. dates for you, Jacob. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Still young, still uh, young. Still young, still yeah. young. Um, excuse Taylor Swift. Rocking out to Taylor Swift. <laughs> but on the, by the same token, it wouldn't necessarily be aware of some of the things that a human driver would be. And mm. you've already seen a couple of accidents where a robotic car or a car operated in autonomous mode has 
crashed with fatal consequences. Yeah. There was one quite recently um, in Arizona. And while it's probably premature to make a, a determination about the precise cause of that, it seems to be in the interface, because we're not at full autonomy yet, yeah. it's in the interface between the human... The robot expects that the human will take over under certain conditions. The human doesn't do that. And then you get into the accountability problem. Yeah. Is it the programmer? Is it the human driver? So until you get to the point where you can trust... And we're, we're not close, by the way, to the mm. point where a robotic driver can drive as or more safely than a human under all conditions. So at, at some point, you still are going to have that interface. And that's going to create problems because while, it, while teams of robots and humans could theoretically be more efficient than either on their own. Robots doing the sort of dull, dirty, and dangerous tasks and humans making high-level decisions. That's the sort of ideal case mm. where you work is evenly distributed according to capability. But the interface is the really tricky thing. Yeah. And it's really, that's where I think you're going to see a lot of the churn and a lot of the danger is robotic systems, which are fundamentally alien. They, they approach problems and values in a very, very entirely different, not even very, an entirely different way than human intelligence and how you meld the two yeah. in a way that actually allows you to, to get the best out of both and mitigate the harms of both is the big task, the big question. Well, thanks so much, Jacob. That's really interesting. You can read the report, which you should do, at chathamhouse.org. Okay, so now I'm joined by Jane Kinnamont, who is a senior research fellow and deputy head of the Middle East and North Africa programme at Chatham House. Thanks very much for joining us, Jane. Thank you. So we're here today to talk about Saudi Arabia and particularly reflect on recent news about female activists being arrested in light of the lifting of a ban on women drivers that happened last year. And Jane recently wrote on this for the Chatham House website, in an expert comment titled The Arrests of Saudi Women's Driving Activists Underline the Limits of Reforms. I'd like to begin just quite broadly by talking about how Saudi Arabia is kind of organised as a state. I think there's this view in uh, Western media, particularly perhaps, that Saudi Arabia is quite an authoritarian, kind of ultra-conservative country. Is that the case on the ground? And how is the government structure of Saudi Arabia organised? Saudi Arabia is certainly an authoritarian monarchy, but it's not necessarily a conservative place. The society is very, very diverse. And so your life as a Saudi in Saudi Arabia could range from being highly, highly traditional to being extremely westernised, really depending on your family, your preferences, where you live. It's quite difficult to generalise about the nature of Saudi society. I think what is confusing and intriguing the rest of the world is that for years Saudi officials told us that this was a highly conservative society, they couldn't bring about rapid change, they certainly couldn't do something outrageous like allowing women to drive and suddenly you have a young crown prince in his early 30s portraying a totally different type of country saying women will drive, we've opened cinemas, this is a country full of tech savvy young entrepreneurial artistic types and it's confusing for people because the two things don't add up. So you mentioned the Crown Prince there. Is he the main driver of reform? And what's the motivation behind this kind of shifting vision? In the Saudi monarchy, 
the king is the main centre of power, but the current king, Salman, has given power to his son to a degree that is unprecedented in Saudi Arabia. One of the interesting things about this monarchy is it's not very old. Mm. Until recently, all the rulers of the country, except for the first one, have been the sons of King Abdulaziz, the first ruler. And for many years, these ageing half-brothers have passed the throne between them. They've shared power. They've often taken decisions very slowly because they've had a need to reach agreement among themselves. This king is obviously sick of that. He's been a king in waiting for decades. And now that he has come to power, which happened in 2015, he has basically caught many others out of decision making, massively empowered his son, who is the crown prince. He's also the defence minister. He runs a a huge committee on overhauling the economy. And he, interestingly, seems to believe that the old model of how Saudi Arabia was operating was unsustainable. Mm -hmm. So, So to recap on what that was, it was a monarchy without a very strong army, but one that legitimised itself through alliances with other key forces in society, primarily influential religious clerics. So there was a deal. The clerics basically said the Al Saud monarchy are the legitimate rulers. Rebelling in any way is totally bad. And the monarchy gave those clerics extensive powers over the law and over social life and over education. Uh, So there was a kind of pact there. The other major way that they were able to legitimise themselves was through having this huge windfall wealth because they're the world's largest oil exporter. So they've been able to have lots of handouts, free services, no tax for citizens. And the business community has basically been totally dependent on the government as well. What is changing now is that there is a growing awareness among the younger generation that that oil is running out. Mm. They've got maybe 80 years of production, but they're alarmed that the price has fallen dramatically uh, compared to where it was in the first kind of 10 years of, of this century. And they're worried that it will actually become technologically obsolete. Sure. They know that within Mohammed bin Salman's <laughs> lifetime, they need to win themselves off this. At one point, he even said they could win themselves off it by 2020, which was... Typical of the kind of wild, exciting, ambitious, but totally unrealistic (laughs) statements that are quite often coming out at the moment. Mohammed bin Salman also, I think, by character, is not keen on having such a big influence with the religious clerics. That's partly because he's more socially liberal. It's also because the clerics are powerful. And this younger generation doesn't really want there to be any forces in society that could challenge the central power of the crown prince. That's really interesting. So in terms of this kind of evolution of the economy, what industries and sectors are they aiming to sort of move to specialise in, if not oil production? What's going to replace that? They want to do a lot of things at once. This is perhaps part of the problem. So the sectors that Saudis already managed to diversify into tend to be ones that take advantage of having cheap energy. So petrochemicals and plastics in particular... They want to go a lot further now and go well beyond energy. But one of the problems that they have is the the country's stuck in a kind of middle to high income trap sure. where Saudis enjoy relatively high incomes because of the oil and want to find employment in jobs that pay them those relatively high incomes. But the country doesn't necessarily have the education and R&D capacity 
that allows you to generate those kinds of incomes from non-oil sectors. That's what they're wrestling with. They want to shift the economy to a much higher technology base. Mm. They are talking about having a huge new city on the Red Sea where when they, they launched it, they gave citizenship to a robot and they said this would be <laughs> you know a great world centre for AI and unmanned vehicles and all these things. But there's a big gap between the aspiration and the reality Investors are not actually put, putting their money into this kind of thing in Saudi Arabia because it is so untested and it is seen as so high risk. In the middle, between the manufacturing and the super high tech, they're also looking at various services, some of them an economic boon coming from social liberalisation. So basically tourism and entertainment and leisure are all industries that have been really underdeveloped because the society has been very kind of strictly governed. It's not possible to actually go out and do very much in Saudi Arabia. And the government has obviously noticed that Saudis are spending a lot of money on entertainment, tourism and leisure in Dubai and Beirut yeah. and London. So they're trying to open these things up at home and basically bring that money home. So interestingly, with the recent opening of cinemas, which happened in April... You know, until very recently, the government banned cinemas. Now the government is investing in them. Yeah. It is the government's sovereign wealth fund that's partnering with an international movie co theatre company uh, to run cinemas across the country. And that shows you the, the economic drivers mm -hmm. behind some of these social changes. And so would you say that these social changes are predominantly driven by economics? Or do you think in the sort of wider society is there sort of demand for change? Society was beginning to change already uh, in a bottom-up way because of education and technology. Right. So, for instance, cinemas had been banned since the 70s, but that basically became absurd because every Saudi that you see has got at least one mobile phone. They have more <laughs> mobile phones than people yeah. in Saudi Arabia. You know, you have data showing that Saudis are watching films all the time on their phones. So the cinema ban become increasingly absurd because all this content was accessible to people anyway. There has been also a massive expansion of education for the last generation, especially for women. Women now make up the majority of graduates from Saudi universities. Really? They tend to also get the best results. So again, from an economic viewpoint, if you're trying to find new sources of income, there's an economic logic to using this human capital that you've invested in. Mm. But also, at the kind of supply side, more and more women are wanting to wanting to enter the labour market because they are more educated, they see potential for kind of interesting careers that are stimulating. It's no longer a paradigm where women think, you know, not working is a luxury and I'd rather be looked after by a husband. So I, I do think there's a lot of bottom-up change that is underlying what's going on and I don't think it's correct when people see the social liberalisation as pure PR. You know, right. There is something deeper changing in Saudi society, but it's very contested, like anywhere that's changing rapidly. Not everybody likes the direction of travel. People often have very contradictory views from one day to another. You'll get cases of men saying, yeah, I think women should drive, but not my sister. Um, <laughs> or I wouldn't let my daughter do it. Or then you might get an old conservative man who says, actually, I'm so fed up with driving my daughter that I'd like her to drive. You know, people's views are a little bit unpredictable. But at the moment, because the country is very authoritarian and the leadership is really trying to keep a tight grip on power, there's very little sort of public dissent. So there is an appearance that 
everybody who is young is lining up to applaud the leadership and move behind this mm. new vision for a Saudi Arabia, which is thriving, dependent on the private sector, not dependent on government anymore, a fun place to live with a good quality of life, uh, and also a country that's supposed to be producing a, a stronger military, standing up to Iran, like yeah. huge ambitions. In practice, there's a lot more hesitation and uncertainty about where it is all heading. And perhaps the biggest concern is that right now they are not getting the investment that they need to make this huge leap to mm. being a private sector-driven economy. And in the next few years, Mohammed bin Salman will struggle to deliver the jobs that he's promising young Saudis. He may find his popularity damaged, and then you have a big question about how he reacts. Does he open up? Does he consult, change course, bring people in? Or clamp down on any critics. I'd like to turn now just specifically to this, this idea of female drivers and just I wondered if you could expand a bit on how that came about and what the reception of that was from the point of view of sort of the general public but also from the point of view of these more conservative clerics perhaps and generally how that's been received kind of in the international community as well as as a whole. So the women driving issue has been a hugely symbolic issue for Saudi Arabia as well as being a real issue but if somebody knows nothing else about Saudi Arabia they know it as this country where they don't allow women to drive absolutely unique in the world. No other Muslim country had this ban. And of course, it was about their local interpretation of tradition because, you know, cars were not around in the Prophet's time. So it's not a, it's not something that other Islamic authorities have regarded as the same kind of problem. It's been one of those things that's extremely hard for outsiders to understand. You might liken it in a way to the gun control debate in the US, something right. that is just embedded in a society as a, a totemic issue for a particular set of beliefs that to outsiders just doesn't seem to make any sense. <laughs> uh, and for the clerics, this was seen as one of the indications that the government might be accepting Western influence in a lot of areas. You might be driving down the street and seeing only McDonald's and KFC and your key foreign alliances with the Americans, but you are differentiating yourselves from this dreadful West in one key way, uh, that your women are protected by not having this mobility that they have elsewhere. And for many Saudis, they thought this is one of the last issues that will change. From time to time, there would be a hint, there would be a press report that a Saudi source has said women are going to be allowed to drive and then it would just never happen. Right. Uh, and finally, King Salman did take this bold step and it had a huge PR victory internationally. It was one of the ways that they could start to really address what has been a very negative reputation in the rest of the world, both in the West and in the Islamic world, to many people. At home, it was more controversial, but actually not quite as controversial as people had thought. Right. Partly because of the authoritarian nature of the system. The clerics do know that, to some extent, they need to fall into line with the government and that the government is prepared to sack them if they're on the official payroll, cut their salary, or potentially, if they're independent clerics, even put them in jail. 
And so there were certainly murmurings and grumblings, but there was no serious opposition in an organised sense coming from the clerics. Could you explain why this issue is sort of flared up? Because obviously the major changes took place last year, I believe. But then in the last few weeks, there's been some controversy regarding some of the female activists who campaigned for mm. uh, for the right to drive. Could you explain what's behind that? So the country's now getting ready for women to drive this month. The announcement was made last year, but they then had a few months to implement it, to do things like set up driving schools for women, train people up to get ready. And there are Saudi women who have been campaigning since the early 1990s for this right. When it was announced that they would get it, they were delighted. If you looked on Twitter, they were putting up pictures of the king and Mohammed bin Salman, and suddenly they fell silent because some of them started to get phone calls from people close to the government saying basically shut up about this, saying, we do not want you to comment on this. Whether you're saying it's good or bad, just don't say anything about it. Mm. And their interpretation was basically the government doesn't want activists claiming credit. I think that's very credible. The leadership likes to style itself as very magnanimous, as the, the people who know best about the future of the country, and they never want to look like they are giving in to pressure, whether that's Western pressure or domestic pressure. They want to look like they're totally in charge. So suddenly, just a few weeks before women are allowed to drive, just over 10 people are arrested, male and female, who have right. campaigned for a long time for women to be able to drive, from one who's 70, who was part of the first women driving protest in the 90s, to one who is 28, internationally very well-known, photographed recently with Meghan Markle at a conference. Uh, it seemed really stunning. But in terms of domestic politics, it seems to have been meant, firstly, to make sure that these women were not publicly celebrating when driving started, and also to show the Conservatives that Liberals were not having it all their own way. Right. So there is this tendency in, in Saudi politics to try to show some kind of balance, even if it's a negative balance. This has been said before, for instance, when the leadership executed a, a well-known dissident Shia cleric. It was around the same time they were also executing Sunni ISIS members. And one of the explanations given by Saudis that you could talk to would, would be, well, we've got to show both sides some kind of balance. And in a way, that seems to be what is going on here. But internationally, it really saps the goodwill that has been shown towards Saudi Arabia's reform process. And it highlights something that people, frankly, should have seen all along, mm. which is that... This is not politically liberal reform by any stretch of the imagination. Westerners often think that there's a package where economic and political and social liberalisation will go together and people will get closer to a kind of Western liberal democracy. Sure. That is not the model they're pursuing in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, it was interesting that even last week, this kind of cultural discussion that is going on and this attempt to present Saudi Arabia in a new light even reached controversy in the pages of Vogue. Could you explain kind of what happened there? Vogue Arabia did a cover story on women driving the trailblazing women of Saudi Arabia, which astonishingly featured on the cover Saudi princess with her hands at the wheel but deftly managed to ignore the entire women's driving campaign movement, including <laughs> the women who had been arrested. They were just glossed over wow. in the glossy pages. <laughs> but perhaps it's not so astonishing uh, because people also remember that as the Syrian civil war was breaking out, 
uh, Vogue Arabia also had an interview with Bashar Assad's wife, Asma, where she talked about things like how they really had a lot of democracy in their family because they would let the children help choose what movies they were all going to watch. Oh, nice. Nice. <laughs> and do you think, as a result of this, there will be any ramifications in terms of Saudi's ability to engage with the West? Or do you think it will be something that's kind of just pushed under a carpet and, and they move on from an economic standpoint? Western governments need to engage with Saudi Arabia because of its importance as an economy, as an energy provider, and as the seat of Islam, the, the country that hosts the two holiest cities in Islam. Sure. So almost regardless of what is done in Saudi Arabia, there will be some kind of engagement. Mm-hmm. And you know, Western countries have lived with a lot of issues when it comes to human rights or concerns about the war in Yemen more recently. And I don't think this issue of uh, arresting the women activists changes that big picture. But it does tell people something important about the nature of the current reforms, which many Western countries have been very keen to embrace and to help with. You know, there's a lot of uh, interest in cooperation with young entrepreneurs, with women in business and so forth. And now there is a sense that there's more fear among a lot of the people that Westerners in government and in civil society might like to cooperate with. One of the interesting things about the arrests is that there's been vague accusations that the women who campaigned to drive were collaborating with foreign governments. Now, that's always wheeled out to undermine dissidents, (laughs) but it's been very unclear who those foreign governments are supposed to be. Right. And it may be coded message to Western embassies, you know, don't get too involved in engaging with our civil society uh, right now. You know, remember who is firmly in charge of all of this. What's interesting right at the moment, though, is that Saudi Arabia's pattern of foreign relations is changing. Traditionally, it has just prioritised government to government relations. But if it is in this new world where it wants to realise the economic ambitions of Vision 2030, it needs to be engaging much, much more with the foreign private sector. Mm. Now, Mohammed bin Salman is doing that. He's done a huge amount of world travel and high-level meetings with the most prominent CEOs in the global tech sector in particular. But they actually do also care about political risk, reputational issues, and even to some extent women's rights and human rights because that might affect how their company's seen for making big investments in Saudi Arabia. It might affect whether their best talent and top software engineers are happy to go and work there or live there. So in some ways, even if Western governments are not raising their voices loudly over the total absence of political reform, that some of these issues actually matter for the kind of investors that Mohammed bin Salman is trying to court. And as I say, right now they're not getting the investment that they need to make their vision happen. Yeah, and that kind of brings me on to uh, your prospects for the future. Do you think that this need to always balance conservative and liberal elements in Saudi Arabia is ultimately going to be a hindrance to the Crown Prince's attempts to revolutionise the economy? Or do you think that actually it's just something, it's a process they're going to have to manage, but ultimately they will find the investment, they will transform in the way that they want to? The the risks for Mohammed bin Salman, I think, centre on the fact that he is making a lot of enemies in different areas who are losing out from the changes that are underway. And perhaps not all of them need to be enemies. Perhaps there is a route to having a more inclusive approach. 
So within the royal family, he has really disempowered the rest of the family, removed rival princes, sent a very strong message through the anti-corruption Ritz-Carlton mm. arrests uh, that happened last year that princes no longer have immunity. But it's all taken place to such an extent that the, the rest of the royal family feel cut out of power, basically. Uh, so there are concerns there. People internationally worry that he could even be at risk of assassination by a family member, which has happened to a previous Saudi king in the past. He's also ratcheted up tensions with neighbouring states, especially with Qatar. He's taken a very belligerent attitude towards Iran. When it comes to domestic business, a lot of the old business community feel that they are being left out of the Vision 2030 process, that there's now only an interest in foreign investors. From all sorts of sides, the losers of change feel aggrieved. Right now, they're not getting together and mobilising, but that is the risk if they did manage to find some kind of way to get together and counter him. If it reaches a tipping point where the losers seem to outnumber the winners. And how likely do you think that is? To me, the critical factor is jobs. Right. Because Mohammed bin Salman has been trying really to build his popularity and stake his legitimacy on the youth of Saudi Arabia, uh, which is a very broad and generic constituency. But mm -hmm. basically, he takes the view that we know from opinion polling that what they care about the most is jobs and housing. He's also taking the bet that enough of them care about having fun and being able to go out, that they will buy into his project because of the social liberalisation. But the next few years will be critical because if they can't attract more private investment, those young people will really face dashed expectations when it comes to their jobs. And they're right. people with high expectations and good education. So that can be a recipe for social unrest. Jane Kinnaman, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Undercurrents. Thanks so much for listening. If you've liked what you've heard, please rate and subscribe on whatever provider you use to listen to podcasts. In the description below, we've linked various articles uh, as well as the new artificial intelligence report. So take a look at those. And in the next couple of weeks, we'll be providing you with some very exciting new interviews as well as a recording from the London conference about out-of-touch elites. Are elites out of touch? Yeah. I don't know what you think, but uh, I, I know what Agnes thinks. Um, <laughs> really? I keep yes. my views so much to myself. <laughs> um, but in the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston, and you've been listening to Undercurrents. <laughs>